Oh, hi, listeners. Um, in this episode, you will hear a lot about campaigning and campaign tactics. And uh, this is mainly coming from one thing that I don't know we've mentioned is that Ruth and I work in campaigning in digital rights organization. Uh, Ruth, what are you? I'm actually a digital rights campaigner and I focus mostly on free expression issues. Cool. And I am basically a graphic designer visual communication. I work in the comms team. So it's all about messaging, all in campaigns. So this is why you're going to be listening and hearing a lot about campaign tactics and stuff like that. Just a head note for you. Thank you. Let's start. Hello and welcome to the intersection of things. Internet stuff, smashing the patriarchy, one issue at a time. So what are we, what are we talking about this episode? Feelings. I think today we just really wanted to talk about our feelings. More specifically about anger and outrage. Yes. How angry we are about outrage? Well, just to give a little bit of context, uh, I think... Shit's fucked. No, I'm just kidding. Just to give a little bit of context, um, not that long ago I went on Twitter and muted all the tweets that contained the word breaking news or breaking or urgent or outrageous and decided to see how that went. I was noticing increasingly that going on my social media, going into the timelines was not a pleasant experience. And if anything, I was getting that little like, you know, growl every time I was looking at timelines. And I identified that there were some things, some words, and they were not even like, quote unquote, triggers. But they were just some words that would, I don't know, just made me a little bit pissed. And I was like, do I really need to be angry about this thing that's happening in New Jersey? I live in Vancouver, and I know that this is a global world, but like, do I need to know that right now and have the little adrenaline shot uh, going through my body, right? Like, act now. I cannot vote in the States. I cannot call my representatives. So yeah, why, why subject myself to that? So that got me thinking about the tactics that media organizations, politicians, and even NGOs used to grab our attention, right? That breaking, outrageous, urgent, it's a mechanism to get me to notice them in the very busy Twitter timelines. So yeah, I decided like maybe this should be a thing that I would like to talk to Ruth about. Yeah, I think this is a thing that we've been talking about more and more in our little chats and how we're really concerned about this obsession with getting everyone's attention on the internet because there's just so much competing for our for our attention that it's starting to be really harmful to our mental health and it's increasing anxiety. And we always feel like everything's trying to make us feel something to the point that we're constantly surrounded by this like attention grabbing like really intense feelings wherever we go on the internet yep and your favorite academic wrote about it yes saying up to fecky of uh twitter and tear gas fame you know i just happen to literally have her book next to me in my desk which makes me seem like such a nerd um but <laughs> yeah, I am a nerd. So it's actually a fact. She had this article recently that's about this attention economy, this idea that everything is just competing for our attention at the moment. And everyone 
can speak, which is a really interesting perspective on lots of discussions about censorship. Like we all actually can post on Facebook or um, attempt to make a podcast and try and get our views out there. The thing that's censoring us is the amount, the volume of content and how you're trying to compete with all of these different algorithms, with people who are spending money on ads, with the way that things that are hateful and aggressive get more attention on the internet. So you want to put forward like a positive, thoughtful message, but something that is controversial and upsetting actually gets seen by more people because, you know, I keep thinking about that horrific story about that YouTuber, Logan Paul, who went into the Aikohara, I think that's how you say it, the forest in Japan that's famous for having a lot of suicide victims. And he went in and filmed in that forest and included filming a suicide victim. And the fact that I know about it actually upsets me because I shouldn't know about this random YouTuber. And I even ended up watching some of one of his videos that was also being, you know, hate shared. That was about him being in Japan and I could see him being horribly racist to people in Japan. And I watched two minutes of it and then I was just like, what am I doing? Because enough people were sharing it saying, look at this racist video. And that's kind of the problem of this censorship, is that someone who says hateful things drowns out all the positive things. And I end up getting really upset by something that I should never even be seeing because it's not in my interests. Yeah, I mean, I think I heard it on Hidden Brain, but a phrase that described this really well was how media companies are engaging in a race to the bottom of the brainstem quote-unquote, because all of these reactions are designed, right, designed to get you to pay attention. It's basically someone shouting fire. (laughs) Um, It's basically somebody saying, you're in danger, this is fucked up, hate this, right? And uh, I really like the connection that uh, Tefeki does in, uh, in that article on Wired about how the attention economy is directly related to issues of free speech, Uh, who gets heard and we've mentioned it before like the TLDR of the article is that to control free speech before you used to control the mouths now you control the ears so basically who is listening to who and what mechanisms are companies politicians NGOs am I missing someone I don't know what what mechanisms are they or we using to um, to capture that attention and to get our speech heard. A key thing for this though is that, as mentioned before, if this is like a race to the bottom of the brainstem, what does that mean for mental health? What does that mean for the way in which we interact with one another? Just being outraged all the time and creating communities whose like common point is to be angry about something. Um, Yeah, I think that's the key thing that we were noticing that there's this fight for attention that lots of people have talked about but it ends up being I always think about like there's that dick at a party who says something really controversial so that everyone will look at them maybe they'll even start a fight but now they're the important person at the party and I think that's too much what's happening on the internet like yes we're all fighting for attention and there's There is one other method of getting attention, that is posting a cute video of a puppy that also gets people attention, but the rest of the time it seems to be to be making people feel outraged rather than just saying I've got something that's worthwhile because there's so much to fight about 
that like you have to do something that would trigger that intense feeling that like heart racing gut-wrenching fury in order to pay attention to something and i mean and this is not new right advertising has sort of banked on this for the longest time um the basic formula of advertising is create a problem or frame a problem and then sell a solution i mean just to go into feminist history i think it was gillette um, the brand of racers that at some point decades ago they wanted or decided that they wanted to double their audience or their consumers so they wanted to market towards women so an advertising campaign got on its way and framed body hair as a problem to be solved as something undesirable and something dirty for women so they literally took the formula of frame something as a problem and then sell the solution and and that's where it started right like what are the ethics of framing something as a problem, creating a either moral panic or just some sort of, I don't know, common enemy in order to get what you want, which is money, followers, attention, influence. Yeah, so I think social media is just basically grabbing the advertising formula and putting it on steroids, quite frankly. Yeah, it's interesting because we also get advertising on the internet, but then the rest of the content doesn't look very dissimilar from advertising. It's almost like everything is various forms of advertising. I mean, it's it's weird because even Facebook have been saying that most people are just sharing news articles and stories rather than their own, you know, personal life stories as much as the Facebook want them to. So now even individuals when we post things we tend to be like oh god look at this this is so awful i'm so upset like we're actually we're all kind of participating in this i think mm -hmm. i know i'm guilty of it i absolutely like when i think about it i know that i have tried to get an emotional reaction out of my friends to get them politically on board with me or what happens when some someone like an ngo adopts this formula for good though what if the justification is something like, hey, I'm, I'm lighting a fire under your ass, but this is for you to notice and act now. And I don't know, call your representatives or sign this petition. Is it just as problematic? Yeah, I mean, I think that it has to be genuine. I think that's the fundamental answer to the thing about it being good or not. There has to be a real justification to have those feelings. It's when you're trying to hype something up beyond what it actually is in order to make people react. Like one of the things that I often think about is that I support a charity called Medical Aid for Palestine. They write to me about really serious issues like that it's very hard to have mammograms and breast cancer tests in Palestine or that um, Israel often blocks people from leaving to go and have important surgery procedures or the fact that there are hospitals that have their water supply cut off or they've lost energy and all of these of really core problems where you can see that people are being hurt and when I see that I do feel angry and I you know I do the only thing that I can do because I am not a doctor which is donate to this charity and support them and I don't feel like 
they're doing anything wrong in telling me the story that gives me those feelings to donate because it is an outrageous situation. It seems just to be angry in that situation. But I think there are situations where it's not a righteous anger, which is, a, I, I guess, a very sort of theological concept, but I still have mm-hmm. in my head. But they're, they're just a triggering kind of harmful anger. Yeah, I, I like that you're mentioning this distinction, right, between informing people and communities about issues that are not talked about and sometimes uh, by design these issues are not allowed in the public sphere because they're making people in power uncomfortable, right? So there's a difference between that and between framing something in such a way that creates the problem itself. It's like the manufacturing of the end of the world to get you to act. And I think that for me is one of those ethical knots that um, I don't care about the intention. Um, intentions are nothing. It's the impact that you're having on your community. What matters? It, it might get people to act now, as they say, but what kind of community are these um, messages creating? What kind of internet environment are we fostering with the constant manufacturing of of outrage? Yeah, there's a question about whether or not people are feeling empowered by constantly feeling angry. I Mm. think that there's some steps that are really missing out about education. Mm -hmm. Like, how much are we being constantly triggered without really growing without really learning more about things but we're just seeing like a top level story and feeling fury and then there's also a thing about community and whether or not these feelings are bringing people together or just further dividing people yeah that's a great question i think it's important to first acknowledge whose anger are we paying attention to that has to do with who gets to talk and whose priorities are we going to pay attention to and riot over or like outrage over and it becomes very clear to me that whoever's talking without listening to the most affected often creates points that tend to that they they do sound overblown or overstating the issue and when you see something exaggerated things start getting polarized right there is a point to be made for who's anger and who is being made angry right who is being harvested to um, take action to solve whose problems i mean i think i struggle fundamentally with this issue about what about when anger is good because this whole mm. thing about women need to be saying it's good to be angry and right to be angry there are things that i want to feel that fury about like I actually wrote a poem you know as you do about how much I feel like I have to smother my feelings a lot of the time to put my feelings in a box when I talk to certain people usually when you talk to men about things that they've done how you have to always be like not you not all men no not not you specifically let me let you feel safe and warm and comfortable in this conversation because if i'm angry then you'll feel upset and that's all about the goddamn patriarchy um and so i want to see like that is right like that angry is that anger is right 
But then, like, what we hate is manipulatively saying, you should be angry and you should do this thing that I'm directly channeling you into. Hey, hey, it's almost like the consent thing comes back. Ah. Um, mm. But it's... Our favorite topic yeah, around here. Uh, it's what you said about triggering people. Like, it's about making sure that we're actually choosing to have those feelings and saying, like, this is my anger and I'm choosing to act on it and being just, like, riled up into this, like, anxious state. And I think, like, that's what you were really talking about initially with wanting to mute things on Twitter. It's about, like, mm-hmm. being able to take back some control and look after yourself and your mental health, if I'm right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I really like how you're making that point with consent. Is like, I want to choose when and about what I'm um, getting angry. It goes back to that point of whose anger is it? Because this also has the the added issue of knowing that not every single person in society is allowed anger. So you have black women being read as angry just by existing, people of color being read as angry just by speaking up or just speaking. The queers that if they mention something in the workplace, all of a sudden they're the sensitive snowflakes, right? Because they're angry. Um, So not every single person is allowed to have anger, let alone to have anger um, that will get other people to act. So it's, I think that's another another reason of why I was muting a lot of those tweets and a lot of those uh, Facebook posts and notifications, it was because I did not see the same level of outrage for issues that in my life are life or death issues, right? I was not seeing the same level of care by those three main point, uh, three main bodies that I mentioned politicians or people in power, NGOs and corporations. I was not seeing the same amount of care if if you can translate their outrage into they care about something. I was not seeing that. So all of a sudden the issues that we were getting angry about or that were attempting to trigger me or or you know trigger my anger were not my choice, were not my issues and were not to save my or my community's life or to improve it so it was a matter of of choice like you say like do i choose this and if i only have limited amount of um of minutes in this world and adrenaline shots that my body can get um i would rather spend them in things that affect me and my communities because it's plural right it's not just one monolithic thing yeah yeah i mean in the world of campaigning on surveillance i always used to get really frustrated by one of the common tactics which i always felt was tapping into this sense of like superior anger where articles would be written that would say politicians shouldn't make laws about things they don't understand and it's like that seems to make some sense but underneath it i always felt there was this idea that i know best I'm smart, I'm brilliant, I should be making all the laws. And so what was being tapped into is a kind of collective superiority of everyone who's campaigning on surveillance to feel like we know best, we understand everything, and we should make all of these rules. And that anger then of like, how dare they propose things? And 
I feel like of all the kinds of feelings to be having, like an outrage of like, I should be in charge, isn't like the emotion that I want to be steering social change. Like, I wish that that feeling that people were having was anger and outrage on behalf of people who have been hurt. Like, how dare they harm people? Like, how dare they target people for surveillance? There are so many, like, real-life stories about surveillance being used against people. I don't know if you know the story of Doreen Lawrence. No. She's, um... Well, now she's a baroness, but that's... Well, it's like it's a pretty huge story in uh, UK history, but her son was uh, murdered a couple of decades ago, and then the police didn't investigate the murder, which was done by, well, I think... Oh, gosh, I'm like, now I need all my facts. But several white guys murdered um, a black boy... And um, she spoke up about this, tried to get the police to act. What we now know many years later is that the police surveilled her, like the mother of the victim, in order to prevent her from exposing problems within the police. Wow. That is a classic example of how surveillance is used against people. Like that is someone who was completely innocent, in fact was a victim, who was doing something good for society. And ultimately, like that whole horrific story, that whole case did lead to improvements in our country because it led to an investigation into institutionalized racism in the police, which led to many changes that were forced into the police. Not to say that the police are by any means perfect, but it was like a national conversation about institutionalized racism that happened as a result of the work that she did. And that is why she became a baroness. And that's why she's such a legendary person in UK politics. It sucks that it took It it had to take her kid's life and her being surveilled for this to happen. Yeah. And I'm like, that story is just like one example of surveillance being used against people who are not criminals. And like, that's the kind of thing that should make people want to do something. It should be selfless. Like, it should be selfless anger. Yeah, or like the million stories about surveillance against... Muslim communities, I think, in in the UK and in North America, right? Um, You will know a little bit more about the UK context, but here in in North America, um, it's been well known that whenever someone from, say, Canada, who is Muslim or has a background of, you know, it's like their family, they might not be Muslim, but their family is, it is well known that at the border, even when they have a Canadian passport, I don't even know why I'm saying even when, but like even when they're having a Canadian passport, they are being targeted and selectively pulled away and have their devices searched and interrogated. Again, even if they've lived their entire lives in this country and and you know that that's not just a random search. The point I'm trying to make here is that there is enough awful out there. There are enough things that we need to be talking about and things that we need to be concerned about. I believe there is no need to manufacture an outrage because we already have all of this shitty stuff. Why do you think, and and you as a campaigner, um, I, I would really love to hear your opinion on this. Why do you think that it is then so hard? Why is it so hard to then uh, to bring these stories and put them at the forefront of the battles that we're fighting. If we're fighting for privacy, why is it so hard to give 
these communities, the microphone and the page, why is it so hard to talk about, say, gendered violence on the internet when we're fighting for free expression? Um, why? Okay, I mean, I can give a number of different like things that I roll, think. This is the question of the century. Yeah. In um, campaigning. On the one hand, I think there's an element of fear, which comes up in a lot of different ways. There's a fear of getting that wrong, of, you know, having to be perfect in order to present those stories. There's an element of fear that you'll get abuse and backlash from dickheads on the internet, that you will get people who are like, oh, why are you a social justice warrior? Which I have literally seen human rights organizations getting that abuse on their Facebook page. And I'm just like, human rights, why are you surprised that they are talking about things that are issues of justice? But still, I think those groups, those communities can seem really powerful and there's this fear that's connected to that. There's the historical sense that many of these movements have been funded and led by people who are powerful, by white men, and that that is where the institutional power is. So it's not just that, like, the fear of the online community, it's the fear of losing, like, that powerful support that you've had. If your funding comes from people who don't care about those issues, you're trying to not upset them and even if you're not doing that quite consciously, I think that can seep into how people make decisions about their communication. I think then there's the historical problem of literally not talking to people who are impacted by these issues, of only right. talking about things from your own perspective, your own angle on like why you're upset about it, and then not even understanding or learning about those other perspectives. So you haven't made the effort to reach out. You haven't got anyone who's a person of colour on your staff, so you're not even having those internal conversations. Or even when you do, you don't feel able to because they're not in, also not in a management position, so they don't have that influence. There's a s sense that coalitions are hard. People, you know, that involves, again, like listening, taking things on board, acting slowly, which isn't really something that comes easily to everybody. And then I will always say there's, I mean, there are so many reasons I could give because honestly, like the reason behind all of that is called um, white supremacy um, and everything that's, yeah, <laughs> everything that is white culture and white supremacy culture that means we find not talking about white people first difficult. Flip side though, like the one thing that I will say is that people who are oppressed have more issues to be concerned about. And so they don't have the time to talk about every single issue that is affecting them. So you have to prioritize. So even if the environment issues and surveillance and issues of poverty and workers' rights are all most impacting on marginalized communities, you then don't want to be the spokesperson or the person campaigning on every single one of those issues. Like people choose the thing that's important to them. This is just my perspective, but things that seem to one community as super important, like surveillance online, that does impact people of color the most, then isn't necessarily seen as the number one issue by those people impacted. 
And so those people who already feel like, but this is the thing that I care about the most, more likely, like I'm literally saying all of this, like as a white person, you know, like then do speak up the loudest because they feel motivated to speak up the loudest, I guess is what I'm saying, because they don't have as many other issues that they're concerned about. I know I'm really super generalizing here. And obviously there are issues that impact people like across race, like disability is another massive area where surveillance happens. And, you know, that's like across race Um, Mm. in the UK, especially we have this whole problem with surveilling people who are on benefits to try and prove that they're not disabled because our whole country is ableist. And that's awful. Wow. Um, yeah. The amount of money that gets spent just to abuse people. Yeah, I mean, it really sucks. And then there's this whole thing about like people who literally are campaigners about disability rights end up being surveilled so that they can try and prove that they're not disabled because if you can campaign then therefore you can work and if you can work then you shouldn't be on benefits so you shouldn't have our support. So trying to expose problems in the benefit system can literally be a reason for getting you kicked out of the system which is the problem you're trying to expose. It's a little bit of a weird circle there. So fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what you think about all of the stuff I just said. Was Do you think that's the case or am I... Um off wide of the mark <laughs> um i was thinking a lot of like color of change the organization I, I follow them and i follow their work they're doing great stuff and they're led by people of color or black people uh in the united states uh, they were the ones that did the the net neutrality angle that said net neutrality is a racial issue yeah, acknowledging that net neutrality is essential to free speech um, and they contextualize a problem, uh, yeah. essentially doing, uh, or, or the thread that you were just mentioning about how net neutrality allows unheard voices or voices that get drowned to be heard and to have a place, right? A resource. So, so yeah, I, I was thinking a lot about them while you were talking. What's interesting, though, is that whenever I think there, yes, there are priorities, but more often than not, whenever you are on your field, say uh, privacy, say um, um, other other issue that you just mentioned, like you will find climate change yeah environmental issues you will find more often than not communities who are already doing work on that like it is just because we don't hear about them doesn't mean that a that's not their priority b that they don't exist or c that that's not um, an issue because i don't know why be fighting for cheaper online access if I don't have water in my community, right? More often than not, that is obviously the the, the, the priority the priorities that need to be accounted for, but even with that, there are already people taking care of the lower priority too. Um, what I think it's missing is if people are really doing their research on their field, no matter what the problem is, I guarantee you that there's someone from that community who's most impacted already doing work. Maybe they don't have all of those nasty tools and all the media time, and that's not their full-time job because they can't, but they're already doing that, right? So I think my call for that would to, uh, just like we said in the previous episode, to listen. People will do their thing. um, And again, if we're really experts on our field, I guarantee that we will find them. Yeah. Like, literally, as I was saying that, I was like, this isn't quite right. Mm. Like, I I think it's like a, an element of 
truth but yeah, it isn't I... true that like there's no one doing that because I was like literally as I was saying it, I was like well obviously there are tons of people like I was sort of like color of change was like coming into my head as I was saying it and I was like this isn't quite right yeah like there is this thing I think of like competing demands Mm. on people's time and attention i i think that part is true but i'm not trying to pretend that there aren't people of every gender and race working on all of these different things yeah and but i do appreciate how you framed it though because it is um it is a common misconception that well why would people care about x if y is a lot more pressing framing it that way loses nuance and loses or or fails to recognize that everything is connected intersection um, yeah that everything is connected and for example um just to take it to the environmental again communities there are a lot of indigenous communities especially up north but not even up north in 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 canada um who are lacking basic services like water right um rural and or indigenous communities. So one of the things that I'm asked often whenever I share with people that I work in a digital rights organization is uh, why should people care about lower cell phone prices if they don't have water? And I'm like, well, fair. Without water, you cannot live. Without a cell phone, you sort of get by. I always frame it in... I recognize first that that's a really pressing problem and that priority exists. I also try to tell people how it should not be a matter of well do you want water or do you want the internet people have the right to education right education is also an essential part of of someone's life if they want to make it make it as in survive at least and try getting an education nowadays without internet you know try participating in public policy debates without the internet some of those policy debates will be about water so it's again everything is connected and i think to frame these issues as isolated from one another it's uh, it's not doing it justice it just needs any campaigning or or any discourse around this needs to acknowledge that intersection though and i i don't see that being done that often um i don't know why probably because it's not a juicy hook and it doesn't trigger outrage and it's easier just to be like we all want cheaper stuff but i mean maybe and this this makes me sad if it's true but maybe it is that we're just bad at empathy Mm. we're used to trying to get people to do things more selfishly and a lot of those intersections are specific to different communities to different groups and actually hmm i Mm. think i've also written a piece about this yes what we try and do is try and make things appeal to everyone equally it's trying to find a framing that we think everyone will understand this thing and if we go specific there's this fear that it, it won't connect with everybody. It'll be too specific and people won't won't get it. It won't relate to them. So you try and say something really broad. But I find that the problem with going too broad is then you literally overwrite people's stories. It's like you push people under the bus by trying to make things sound like they happen to everyone equally, which isn't true. And I mean, I also feel like that's really what happened in mass surveillance. And I think about campaigning against surveillance laws in the UK, which I did for a long time, how much we emphasize this like 
everyone storyline. Mm. This like this will affect everyone. We you know we talk about mass surveillance, how the government can read your emails or like takes everyone's browsing history, which is true. That's the thing. Like the line is not a lie. It's just it's not the whole truth. Um yeah. it's not the specific truth. And yeah. like the specific truth is if you're a Muslim in the UK, you also get surveyed in other ways. So you get surveyed at school in this thing called the Prevent Scheme, which is supposed to be about um, preventing terrorism. Oh my the, god. Yeah, I mean, uh, just everything is awful here. But the Prevent Scheme means that if you... What what are, what are examples that I store heard about? Like, reading books about the history of Iran, mm. seen as, like, suspicious behaviour. Um, oh, wow. Like praying frequently which i also heard from several people like is basically just being muslim basically at school is seen as a sign of extremism like taking your religion seriously wow so you have that thing so there's an obligation now on teachers to report children if they think they're being radicalized and so you're already surveyed at school and you come home and you're surveyed on the computer those things together make up a sense of constantly being watched that change people's behavior, that make people feel more anxious. Again, this isn't my experience. Mm -hmm. It's a different, it's just a different way of looking at surveillance. Yeah. Rather than just like this one technological thing, it's about someone's whole life and how it is to be Muslim in the UK, to feel like you're always being observed by people. You're always being seen as like a potential extremist at any opportunity. Just to pick on something that you mentioned, uh, you mentioned something about how we want to appeal to every single person, to everyone, and we end up appealing to no one in particular, or appealing to the status quo, basically. Um, I, I remember this anecdote in were taught in in design school how like during the war in the US you know they went all crazy designing all the equipment you know the latest tech invested a lot of money and one of their biggest issues was was that well human bodies come in all sizes right like the people who were fighting were six foot five feet you, you know whatever like different weights different different sizes different bodies so whenever they wanted to fi uh, fly a plane you know, do you fit in the tiny cockpit? So what they decided was to measure every single person and have an average and then design a seat with the average measurements. What ended up happening is like that seat, nobody was comfortable with it. Nobody could perform to their best of their ability because he was not made for them. And that's where we get in, in design and industrial design, that's where we get all of the adjustable things. Um, this apparently this was not a thing but like that's where we where we get you know the little things that allow your seat to move a little bit forward backwards adjust the back um it was out of a recognition that when you try to appeal to every single person by creating an average you will miss the majority of people with your solution solutions can rarely be a one-size-fits-all and uh, and accommodating, right? Adjusting to the circumstances was what they found was the better investment of your time. Did it take more resources? Yeah, yeah, because then you have to figure out, you know, what to adjust and what's a priority, right? Like, is it height? Is it weight? Is it? But it worked, right? And and then it that's how 
also cars ended up being a lot more customizable um, which also leads us into accessibility and all of that but uh, yeah that's that's a little story of the physical world and the military world that kind of calls back to what you're saying of like one message for all rarely rarely and yeah there's gonna be people who are gonna agree or fit in those seats but is that your majority uh, nope yeah so. it's a really interesting story <laughs> just random tidbit trivia um, but just to start closing it up I know that just to bring it back to messaging and campaigning and social media and triggering and like this fight for attention I want to talk about um, yeah we can we can have a segue here yep segue <laughs> was there something that you wanted to say that you didn't get the chance to say earlier about um, mental health I think that the point that I wanted to get across is how I would like to see a little bit more of acknowledgement and recognition of how the tactics that we use to get attention from people are banking heavily on on triggering and outrage uh, they're banking heavily on abusing certain, you know, emotional processes without our consent. And that's, I don't want to say screwing up our mental health as, as if this was the only thing, but I don't think it's helping. Um, especially because we're not aware of it, or at least it, we don't seem to be aware of it. So, yeah, I, I wanted to bring, like, my mission, for I guess, for this episode was also to bring the idea that the mechanisms that we use to get attention from people are a little bit unethical. Uh, borderline abuse, one can say. Literally, you cannot just be generating panic just to get what you want out of people. Be it watching your news channel, votes, be it signatures, or selling a product. I, d- I don't think that's ethical, I don't think that's good, and I don't think that's caring for your community. I understand that there are really good intentions sometimes, but I, I am not sure that the cost of solving that problem can be passed along people and their their mental health. I don't think that's sustainable. And I think I would really like to move from reactive and outragey campaigning and messaging into a more sustainable long-term movement that actually allows us to build the communities that we need that are resilient enough to tackle these problems head on. It has to be a labor of care, you know? That's, That's what I wanted to get at. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I am excited that I'm you know, we're not the only people having these conversations. And I think there's a lot of people who work within the worlds of campaigning who are talking about how can we do things better. I'm really excited by this thing called the Social Change Agency. And they've got a project called the Lost Voices Project. It's all about how the mass numbers of petitions and that kind of style of campaigning that's about having like a hundred thousand people said this thing are drowning out authentic voices and drowning out the voices of people who have lived experiences of the issues and i think that's really interesting because it's that same their whole point about drowning out which i think is the key word is really like what Zainab Tufeki is talking about in terms of censorship. They haven't used the word censorship in any of their reports or messaging, but to me it's that same thing about how you silence people through massive numbers, through, you know, yes, sometimes online that's harassment campaigns, and sometimes that's having all the comments on a Facebook post be really negative so that the one positive comment is just buried and lost and no one's going to see it. Or that people self-censor, right? Why would I comment if I'm going to get death threats or harassment? Yep. 
Yeah. Knowing that there are certain things that if you talk about, you're more likely to get lots of reactions that are going to overwhelm you. I mean, geez, it's a little bit of a scary topic to delve into, but you know, Gamergate. When Gamergate was at its height, oh wait, sorry, fact, what is Gamergate? Um, mm-hmm. Gamergate was a orchestrated hate campaign in response to women in video games. Hmm, that's a really simplified story of it but essentially that's what it was where women who were criticizing video games or even just participating in the industry were getting loads and loads of abuse online and to just even talk about video games at that time and to be a woman was scary genuinely felt like you could not use the hashtag to mention anything about it you couldn't tweet about games without getting some kind of abuse and that was a kind of self-censorship and they're all they all like have very different facets like it's very weird for my brain to go is there a similarity between Gamergate and petitions like they seem just completely different things but it's the question of is someone not able to speak as a result of this Mm. that's the kind of way of looking at censorship that I'm still honestly getting used to you know it's not how I've thought about censorship before until like the last couple of years it always was censorship is being told you can't speak this is blocked you're denied but like really understanding the concept of a chilling effect of censorship of like a fear of speaking it's really hard but i'm trying more and more to look at things and go is someone unable to speak or afraid to speak here how does that censorship exist that is pretty thoughtful but it's also pretty grim this whole panorama um is there any hope Yeah, so a little while ago when we were talking, you brought up this really interesting point about what happens after campaigning, like after you've got people to act. And I really wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that because I want to hear more of your thoughts. This came from... Uh, a reaction or like a thought that you shared with me, right? Um, You said that during campaign training, uh, you're taught a formula. You say if you're going to write an email, a petition or or a video or something, the formula is basically you start by setting up the crisis and then presenting the opportunity and the call for action. You give your backup evidence for like, yeah, the crisis is real. And then you ask again, take action. And then you remind people of the threat because like, hey, fire's burning. And then again, get people to act. So it's this crisis, opportunity, action, crisis, 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 act now. Um, and it got me thinking, after you got what you wanted from the supporter, say money or a signature or they show up to a rally, what happens after? What is the supporter left with? And I think I even made it like a, a link to some of the BDSM communities and King communities out there when they talk a lot about aftercare, right? After something has happened that is out of the ordinary uh, for your everyday life or something that requires you to exert a considerable amount of emotional effort and energy, what happens to you after? What are you left with? And uh, so it got me thinking about what's the protocol for campaign aftercare for your communities uh what are your supporters supporters getting out of this if you just triggered them or activated them then got them to act um what are they getting out of this beyond the fact that they got to do it (laughs) how do you care for them so maintenance is key for your community again if we want to move from reactive campaigns always triggered by the latest news cycle We want to move from that into sustainable movements and communities. Uh, I think 
there should be an element of maintenance and aftercare and um, I don't know if that's possible I don't even know if that's something that it's done in other places you, you're a campaigner you will know more about this but what are your thoughts on that I think it's a really good idea great done good ideas this podcast is sponsored by good ideas because they're good yeah sorry aftercare you were saying i i increasingly feel like the future of campaigning is going to be about more community building it's about helping people who are your supporters connect with each other and support each other and feeling that things that are seen as digital go offline more often um that you have more grassroots led campaigns that you have like local communities that connect with the other organization that's leading on things and that the organization listens to them and lets them take a leadership role. I think having more communication between people rather than having that be like very top down is kind of key to doing that well. But, you know, still, I I think still a lot to learn on that and see where it goes. Well, we can only be hopeful here. (laughs) Oh man, well, let's close it down. What a difficult topic. Thank you so much for wrangling this very abstract idea of anger, outrage, attention, community, um, aftercare, and uh, the online world, which is the world. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you. Thanks for inspiring me. These were really interesting questions to think about, a lot of which, you know, I hadn't given much thought to before you brought them up with me. So I know I've still got a lot of learning to do. Um, but you always make me think better so thank you Aww. all right so that was awesome what are you leaving with uh this week ruth yeah i think the the stuff you brought about campaigning aftercare was really inspiring and i want to think about how to do that better and how to communicate with the communities that i work with better and how to actually take more actions to put people people's voices first rather than always being really top down about things so i want to work on that what about you what did you take away from that i'm taking the concept that came from your favorite academic about how um before uh, the people that are in power people that be they used to quote unquote control the mouths so what people said now they control the ears so before the objective was to control the press and the radio and the discourse itself now it's about controlling the attention a bunch of people can be publishing whatever now it's a matter of who gets to listen to that and that was fascinating to me because it's also this fight for attention what's leading us to fall into this uh, dynamic of outrage and anger and continual activation so i think it's a little cycle and a cycle that's not super healthy Right? Whoop whoop, mental health. Yep. All right. Well, listeners, uh, Ruth will be hearing us next week or next time. Yeah, till, till next time. Thank you for listening to The Intersection of Things. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at Things Intersect or find us online at theintersectionofthings.com. You can find all of our footnotes for this episode right there as well. I am Marinella and you can find me on Twitter at Undazed and such. And I'm Ruth Kuzdil and you can find me on Twitter as at Nessient or on Medium writing about all the things on medium.com slash at Ruth Deal. See you soon!